1-7-5-0-6-5, Samuel Fields versus Scott Jordan. Arguments not to exceed 30 minutes per side. Mr. Kirsch for appellant. As both parties may have noticed, Judge Gibbons is not here. She's going to hear the arguments remotely and, and then uh, vote later on. May it please the court. Good afternoon. My name is Daniel Kirsch. I represent the appellant Samuel Fields. And I would like to reserve five, model, five minutes for rebuttal. Sure. Um, I'd like to begin today with uh, and expect to spend most of my time on uh, the jury's consideration of the extrinsic evidence. Uh, but if I do have any remaining time at the end of that, I may briefly discuss the failure to present um, available mitigating evidence of Mr. Fields' impairments. The Supreme Court has squarely established that jurors must decide a case based on the evidence from the courtroom. In Turner v. Louisiana, the court held, um, in the constitutional sense, trial by jury in a criminal case necessarily implies, at the very least, that the evidence developed against a defendant shall come from the witness stand in a public courtroom where there is full judicial protection of the defendant's right of confrontation, of cross-examination, and of counsel. Uh, also in Parker v. Gladden, the court again recognized this right that the evidence must come from the courtroom and also specifically um, set, stated that the, the undeviating rule that the rights of confrontation and cross-examination are among the fundamental requirements of constitutionally. Let's, let's say you're a trial court judge that's concerned about this kind of jury experiment or doing the, some of the things that happened in this case. What would the instruction look like? How, how would you instruct the jury on these points? I mean, because you couldn't really say you can't experiment, right? I mean, presumably they could do things within the jury room that fit under the umbrella of common sense, trying to figure out whether this witness's testimony really makes sense. Or maybe maybe you just say no experiments. Is that is that what your theory would be? I would instruct them that they cannot consider evidence that did not come from the courtroom. Uh, they cannot consider physical evidence um, to prove the prosecution's case that was not presented as a part of the trial. Can they examine the evidence that was admitted in trial? Yes. Okay, so you they would can. allow them to have the evidence that was admitted trial come to the jury room. Yes. Would you allow them to touch it, to feel it, to look yes. at it? And yes, they can. I, I believe they could. They could examine any of right. the trial if, evidence. If the testimony was that the the knife was a rough knife, could they feel the knife and determine that no, it's a smooth knife? Or if the testimony was it was a black knife, could they look at the knife and say no, I think that's a brown knife? Is yes. that is that allowed? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. What so? What, what what's not allowed then? If, if they can examine it uh, and they can make their own conclusions based upon their examination, could they measure the knife? Say say, say the testimony is the the knife in my opinion was uh, twelve inches long. Could they take a ruler out and say no? That that knife is only about six inches long. Would that be impermissible or would that be permissible? Um, I have not studied the 
law on that in great detail about bringing in a ruler, but my memory, my belief is that some courts have held that you cannot bring a ruler in uh, to deliberations. Okay, is it clearly established by the United States Supreme Court that you can't do that? I mean, this is a habeas case. Right. And you have to, uh, it's your burden to show that it's clearly established federal law by the, the the U.S. Supreme Court, that this right. violates the United States Constitution. Right, Your Honor. And is, Isn't that your problem in the case? Well, I, I think that the clearly established federal law does provide that jur- juries cannot consider evidence that the defendant does not have any right to confront. And that's exactly what happened in this case. How about my example the jury room where they examine the evidence and come to conclusions? I mean, that that's evidence that's not subject to cross-examination, is it? Well, that's a sort of a different category. Uh, the jurors are permitted to rely on their common sense um, and their own experience to reach conclusions. That we don't phrase dispute, covers a lot. We don't dispute that. I'm sorry. Doesn't that phrase cover a lot? It does. It does. Uh, but it does not cover specific physical evidence that is materially different than what was presented at trial that the jury is using to prove the prosecution's case. And that's exactly what happened in this, in this situation. Would your theory require us to, re, uh, would it require an overruling or, or, or no longer following the Fletcher decision? Because that involved a table, I believe. Yes. That, that was not in proof. I don't think it necessarily um, involves overruling Fletcher because Fletcher did find the rule that I'm talking about was clearly established federal law. I think what's different uh, about Fletcher and the table that you were talking about um, is that there was nothing in the facts of Fletcher about that table that was materially different or prejudicial from the bed that was the subject of the evidence um, at trial. Can you ask the same type of inquiries that you're suggesting? That the table might have been a different height? Um, the, the juror might have been a different height than the, than the victim? Well, All those same types of inquiries would have been relevant there in the same way that they're relevant here. Well, I, I, with respect, I don't believe they would have all been relevant in that situation because, again, the facts of the case did not demonstrate that there was any difference between, um, I mean, the height of the bed, with all respect, does not necessarily make, or the height of the table does not necessarily make a difference because the only thing that they were trying to test was when they dropped the gun, how would it fire? So but if you drop the gun here or you drop the gun here, um, that's not going to I make it. Um, I mean, you said it doesn't necessarily make a difference. But, I mean, we can, it, it seems to me that the rule you advocate, you know, that you, you can't consider any anything extrinsic would, in effect, be a ban on jury experiments because, I mean, we can never recreate all the particular circumstances of time and place, right? Right. I mean, and so, I mean, we could have the storm window in the jury room with the exact same screws, and you could still argue, if they didn't experiment with that, you could still argue that uh, the screws might have been sort of, you know, locked in place over time, or had been set in a, over time in a way, at the scene, at the crime scene, at the time, in a way that wasn't true of the, in the jury room or they were in the foundation, you know, they were in the wood of the house itself, which, which created more resistance. I mean, you can always point to 
differences like you are now. And so it seems to, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems like your rule de facto means no more jury experiments. That's not the way that I'm uh, trying to articulate the rule, Your Honor. Uh, in the situation that you described, all of that evidence would have been evidence that was admitted at trial. But you also said there's a confrontation right. And so the attorney's right. not there watching the experiment. But I don't understand how that can be part of this. Well, the confrontation right would have been exercised when that, if, when that was admitted at trial, when that evidence was admitted at trial. Well, the way you expressed it earlier was it wasn't fair to have the jurors doing something without defense counsel there to say, wait a second, you're not doing it in the same way. Well, I, I, I may have misspoke or, or not explained it as clearly as I intended to, but I think the distinction that I'm trying to make now is that this, the situation that Judge Kethledge uh, brought up would involve only evidence or all, all of the evidence that they consider was evidence that was presented at trial. Uh, but what if, what if, I mean, but you can't re, you, you can't bring in everything that was present at the scene. Just like, you know, they didn't bring in the bed uh, in the Fletcher case, right? They used a table. Uh, you can't bring in the structure of the house into which the screws were driven. And it would just seem like, uh, it seems arbitrary to say, um, oh, it's, it didn't, it, it didn't make any difference. Uh, that it was a table in this case, but it does make a difference here that, you know, uh, it's screws or whatever. Well, I think, I mean. Where do you draw the line about what must be 100% original and what can be different? Well, I think the line that the Supreme Court has drawn the line at whether the evidence was introduced at trial. I mean, those are cases about, like, talking to the sheriff on the, you know, outside of the courtroom. It, it's just not about experiments. Well, it's not it's telling true. us this much needs to be original for the experiment to be permissible, um, and, you know, this much makes it impermissible. It's true, but I think the Supreme Court has said that that kind of a distinction does not matter. In both of those situations, you're talking about influences that or the jury is making a decision based on information that they obtained outside of the courtroom, that they obtained by doing these misleading experiments um, in the jury room. Do you think it matters? You've you now said a couple times um, confronting the evidence. Um, I assume that you're invoking the confrontation clause at that point. Um, but the confrontation clause actually is about witnesses. Um, so it says confront witnesses, not con not confront evidence. And I've written opinions where it was a kind of a data-generated um, document. So it wasn't uh, created by a human. And I, I, the, the court simply said that the confrontation clause didn't apply because there were no witnesses. There was no speakers giving testimonial statements. So I, I, do, you, do you think you have a right to confront the cabinet? Or who is the witness well, that we would identify for this scenario. And well, I would distinguish Turner and Parker because both of those cases actually involved witnesses, either the deputies or the bailiff who was giving outside the courtroom testimony or statements. Here there's no statements, right? So how does the confrontation clause even enter the domain? Well, I, I, again, that I believe that that is the rule that the Supreme Court um, has set out. Um, in Turner and Parker and the other cases that are cited in our brief. Should we, should we interpret them against Crawford v. Washington, 
which says that the confrontation clause only applies even to a subset of statements, testimonial statements. I don't, I don't, I do. I, do, I, agree, I do agree, I understand, and I'm, I'm not trying to um, argue that there, there can be distinctions there uh, between. But, but is there a witness? Yes, no, there there's not, but... Um, okay, so why does the Confrontation Clause apply if there's no witness? Well, the Kentucky Supreme Court found that it does apply. I mean, uh, they, they've relied on this. They considered a situation that is exactly like the situation that we have in this case. And they said that this is a fundamental principle uh, where the jury, um, in that case, they used admitted evidence and they experimented on another piece of evidence that was not part of the trial... And the Kentucky Supreme Court said this is a fundamental principle of law. The right of confrontation does apply in this situation. And because the defendant did not get to ask about that or confront this situation or, um, you know, question about it, um, this violated his constitutional rights. If I, if I disagree and if I say that the confrontation clause is limited to witnesses, um, do you admit you would lose then? Do you have to rely on the rule? that the confrontation clause should be expanded to cover confronting cabinets and screws in order for you to win? I don't, I don't believe there is any extension that is required um, in this case. I think that the rule that has been set out by the Supreme Court is clearly established so that, federal that rule. Yes or a no? Um, no. Uh, I, I believe that the, um, there is no extension of a rule that's needed. Uh, we have the rule. The Supreme Court has laid out the rule that is necessary to decide this case. And the Kentucky Supreme Court has already applied that rule in this exact factual circumstance. Why they didn't apply it in Mr. Field's case, I, I don't know. I don't understand because it's exactly the same. And they've continued to apply it afterwards. But so then you, had, you would at least agree that it's already been established that the confrontation clause applies to more than just witnesses? Yes. Thank you. So you're not contending that there was any member of the juror that functioned as a witness with respect to what happened with the um, experiment? Um, not necessarily. I mean, the, all of the uh, my understanding is that the entire jury was involved. There was, I guess, one person who actually unscrewed the screws from the cabinet and pulled the cabinet off. You're not contending uh, that that person is the witness? No, no. It's it's um, it's. The jury was considering this misleading information uh, that is crucial, is central to the state's case. The state is relying on the fact that Mr. Fields, they said that there was no one, there was no opportunity for anybody else to do this. It had to have been Mr. Fields. And for Mr. Fields to do it, he had to have unscrewed all of these screws from the storm window. And he had to do it in a short amount of time. And what and he, was what was special about the screws that were actually involved in the storm window as contrasted with the screws in the cabinet? Well, there were materially different kinds of screws. Um, the screws in the storm window were Phillips head screws. Um, at least there were 17 screws. There were at least 14 of them that had been painted over um, <coughs> into the storm window. Um, and Fields was alleged to have unscrewed 17 of those with, with what was called the twisty knife, which was a broken-off butter knife. Right. Whereas the cabinet had pristine standard screws that were not Phillips screws and had no paint on them. Is that correct? Exactly, Your Honor. Um, and, uh, and is the confrontation clause the only clause 
of the Constitution that you would rely on, or would you rely on the due process clause and the right to a fair trial? Uh, both of those, Your Honor. All of those are included um, in the rule from Turner. The jury knew from the evidence that they were Phillips head screws in the storm window? Yes, the jury did know that. And they also knew that it, they were painted screws? Yes. And they also knew that the um, Mr. Fields um, was intoxicated? Yes. Was there anything that, um, as far as the distinction between the experiment and what was presented in um, the trial, is there any, any factor that is beyond common experience of the jurors to understand the distinction between what was in the experiment and what was presented at trial? Well, it, the fact that they did the experiment itself shows that it was beyond their common understanding and experience. If they, if they knew all of those things and, and knew about those differences, they wouldn't have had to unscrew the screws from the cabinet. Would you agree but, that it's common experience that people know the difference between a flathead screw and a Phillips head screw? Um, I don't know. if It may be. Um, I don't know that the jury appreciated that difference, though. When, um, when conducting the experiment because they said afterwards, this showed that Mr. Fields could have committed the crime. And we do know, if you do know the difference between the two and appreciate the difference between the two, you have to know that what they did in that jury room would have been substantially easier than it would have been for Mr. Fields to do because, because of this, the screw heads were different and made it easier for them to interact with the tool that was being used to unscrew them. Is, your, there, is it your contention that that's a subject of expert testimony, the difference between a flathead screw or a standard screw or universal no. screw and a no. head screw? No, Your Honor. I, we don't, I don't contend that. Weren't there several but, statements by jurors that suggested that they relied on this, yes. um, uh, this experiment to show that this defendant could have done this crime? Yes. Exactly. And doesn't that show, and what does that show to you, and how does that support your argument? Well, um, as I was trying to explain earlier, um, what that shows is that this was beyond their common experience um, and understanding, or common sense and understanding. They didn't understand, at least some of them didn't understand, how this knife could have potentially been used in the way uh, that the prosecution said it was. And to resolve this uncertainty, they had to conduct this experiment and consider this evidence that is materially different than what happened at trial. And then to and rely then, on that evidence. Right, and then they relied on it afterwards and said, this shows that he could have done the crime, which is... How is this entire- case different from this hypothetical? The, it's a witness credibility question. The witness hypothetically can't use one leg to get in the position from which they would have seen the murder. They have to do it within 10 seconds and they have to go 25 feet. So within the jury room, someone decides to see if they can walk 25 feet in 10 seconds without using a leg. It seems like it's identical to this case, and it seems utterly permissible and quite likely to maybe help the defendant. Um, You're not allowed to do that? I don't believe that that situation is um, identical to this case. Well, of course it's not identical, but it seems materially identical because it's not the same person. It's a different person. It's a person without a disability as opposed to one with one. But they do know the 10 seconds and they do know the 25 feet. 
and they just try to see if it's doable. And they rely on it, just as in this case. And they go, I don't think you can do that. And um, therefore, I think this witness was not credible. I don't think they saw the murder. Well, as I understand what you're describing, that sounds like a way of testing the credibility of a particular witness. Bingo. That's different than the situation that we have here, where we're the, the jury is using this. this about credibility? The, the jury, well, the jury is using this information to test, yeah, the, the state's credibility. It's using the information to test the state's theory of the case, to see if that theory of the case makes sense. If it makes sense Same as my that, example. that Sam Fields is the one who intentionally did this act and could have done it in the act that the, in the, could have done it in the manner that the state alleged, in the time frame that the state alleged. And I may have misunderstood uh, your your scenario, but the way, the way point, I... It's a juror that's doing it. By definition, the juror is not the witness. The witness isn't in the room. And so in that sense, it's materially similar because you don't, of course, have the exact window and screws. I, so it's just, it's an analogy, and I, they're just using, this is their way of operationalizing common sense. Right. I admit that there are there are experiments that the jury can perform um, in the jury room. But this particular one, uh, for the reasons that we've talked about... The more about, you refine the theory, the more the clearly established problem rears its head. In other words, the more it's experiments are okay, some confrontation, okay, not okay, the more it seems highly relevant to have a case that shows this refined theory. Well... I mean, the Supreme Court has said that you don't have to rely on a specific factual circumstance before you can apply um, EDPA to a rule like this. Well, I mean, Mr. Kirsch, you would agree. I appreciate your straightforward answers today, by the way. Um, uh, you're, uh, you would agree the Supreme Court has never had a jury experiment case, right? right. And so... And the Supreme Court has made clear over and over again that the circuit courts can, in habeas cases, we must be drawing, we must be following a line that the Supreme Court has already drawn. And as Chief Judge Sutton pointed out, I mean, now we're starting to draw lines between this case and Fletcher and that experiment that he described and we don't even have a, a jury experiment case from the Supreme Court. And, I mean, your arguments are, are reasonable arguments, but I just don't know how we can adopt the line you're advocating um, in a habeas case when we don't, the court has never remotely drawn such a line. Well, I, I think the answer to that is that the Supreme Court does not require that. For EDPA review, it does specifically does not require but an exact factual circumstance to have been. No, I, that's true. Sometimes it's obvious, you know. Like right. I had a case where an officer on purpose hit a motorcyclist with his cruiser, and the question, you know, is that lethal force? We hadn't had that case, but obviously it is. Every see, everybody would agree with that. But for you to invoke this sort of just, you know, uh, it doesn't need the, the more general rule. Every every reasonable jurist would have to agree with the line you're drawing, and it's hard to see how that's true either. Well, uh, the Supreme Court has said that when certain principles are fundamental enough, then the necessity to apply the rule to a specific factual situation is very clear. And there's no dispute. I, I mean, there's no um, 
the Supreme Court has said over and over again that these rules that we're talking about are fundamental. Um, this is a fundamental part of, okay. of a criminal trial. Right. And the Kentucky Supreme Court has said the same. All right. Well, I appreciate your, your answers. Mm-hmm. Counsel, can I ask you, you started by noting some other arguments you might want to make. Yes. You, you agree that all five issues are before the Oblong Court to decide. Yes. There's no need to send it back to the panel. This court can decide all those issues. I, that's my understanding of, of the rule, Your Honor. Yes. Which, uh, just, which, was the, which argument was the second best one? You, you mentioned one <laughs> argument, but I, I can't remember which one was. It was the, uh, the failure to present uh, mitigating evidence at sentencing. Um, in that, in that uh, claim, Your Honor, we talk about um, how there was a lot of specific information about Mr. Fields and his impairments um, that the, his attorneys knew about, but for some unknown reason did not present um, to the jury. Um, he um, had PTSD, has this history of brain impairments, has an EEG showing an abnormal, showing a structural lesion in his brain. Um, He suffers from polysubstance abuse disorder. And although his attorneys presented some evidence of the abuse that he suffered uh, when he was a child um, and growing up um, in his home, they did not present all of this other information that they have that would have contextualized that abuse and explained it for the jury and given them a wholly different perspective um, than the information they considered without that information. Okay, thank you. We'll hear from the other side. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. May it please the court, Matthew Kuhn for the warden. A Kentucky jury convicted Samuel Fields of murdering 84-year-old Bess Horton 30 years ago this August. The Supreme Court of Kentucky has affirmed that conviction twice, once on direct review and again on post-conviction review following a three-day evidentiary hearing. That means this case comes to this court today under EDPA and the highly deferential standards it imposes. Under EDPA, Mr. Fields can prevail only if he shows no fair-minded jurist could agree with the Supreme Court of Kentucky's conclusions. In particular, there are three EDPA principles that we submit pose insurmountable obstacles to Mr. Fields' jury experiment claim. The first is that under EDPA, the state court's decisions must be measured only against the clearly established holdings of the United States Supreme Court, not its dicta and not decisions of this court. The second principle, under EDPA, this court cannot extend a Supreme Court holding to grant a writ even when doing so may be the next logical step in the precedent. Third and finally, when the Supreme Court frames a rule at a high level of generality, state courts have substantial discretion to apply that rule, and this court must be deferential to those conclusions. He's not not arguing no experiments, so that it doesn't matter and clearly established there. He's saying no, no new evidence, and that's what made this experiment problematic. So why doesn't he fit under the no extraneous evidence clearly established rule? So a couple of reasons. Uh, I've not heard today of a U.S. Supreme Court 
decision defining what is and what is not extraneous evidence. We've heard a lot of hypotheticals this morning. Judge Griffin's question about touching, filling, and looking at the knife. The answer is that's not extrinsic evidence. Judge Murphy's question about a table of a different height, that doesn't seem to be extrinsic evidence. And your question, Chief Judge Sutton, about hopping, uh, we didn't get a clear answer on that. My point is there are a host of details that have to be filled up before you can have a clearly established rule. Those details have not been filled up. There's not a case that says that uh, hopping is okay, that the table experiment from Fletcher versus McKee is okay. I think the warden would agree that lines have to be drawn. We have to have cases that deal with each of these different hypotheticals before each of these different hypotheticals become clearly established. So I I agree with my friend uh, in the question from Judge Kethledge that it doesn't require the exact same facts. Uh, But I do think there are two, at least two extensions of Supreme Court precedent that would have to happen before there could be a clearly established rule. The first is that this general rule, this highly generalized rule, uh, would have to be extended to the context of jury experiments. That's the first thing that would have to happen. And the second thing I think that would have to happen is to provide some sort of line between what jury experiments are, are allowed uh, and, and what are not. And Judge Kethledge, your question about where is the line, I think that is the key question of the case. We don't know where the line is. The warden does not dispute that in a direct review case, it would make sense for the Supreme Court to draw a line. There has to be a line somewhere. But we don't know where that line is at this point. Where would you draw the line? <clears throat> You're on the Supreme Court. You get to draw the line. Uh, so, you get to say what experiments are constitutional and what are not. So, of course, that's not the province of EDPA review. Understanding that qualification. Your question, because you're you're saying drawing the line is really hard and hasn't been done, and I'm just curious: would you say that no rule can prohibit experiments in the jury room, or or are there some experiments in the jury room that are so wrongheaded that they can't be constitutionally allowed? So. Uh, assuming I were sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Judge Murphy's question, I think, is a good one, pointing out that cases like Parker and Turner dealt with witnesses that were uh, testify, essentially testifying to the jury uh, outside of the jury room. But I'm asking what line on experiments. Correct. And so the, that would bring to my point that because we've got witness testimony, uh, I think if the Supreme Court were to draw a line, your decision in Doan on DeNovo uh, makes some sense to draw a line to where a jury juror does an at-home experiment uh, and comes and reports to the jury in the manner uh, of an expert witness. Again, I don't think the Supreme Court has drawn a line that would let this court draw that line. Um, but I, I do think if we were on de novo review, um, the analogy to cases like Parker, uh, Turner, and Gladden is a lot stronger when we have a juror doing something at home so uh, and bringing it in. in. To take your example and put it into the facts of this case, if a juror had gone home overnight and used a deformed butter knife and had tried to unscrew screws in a cabinet and had come back and had said, oh yeah, can be done in 17 minutes by a drunk person, even though the screws are different kind, the Phillips screws with paint on them uh, in the actual case, but they were doing it in a different kind. That There you would say that 
could violate the Constitution? So I think that if I were a lawyer making an argument at the U.S. Supreme Court on direct review and those were the facts of the case, uh, it would be a much harder case for the warden than would a de novo review of the facts of this case. Because here, moving sort of to the prejudice side, there were there was a there were some problems with the case, in particular, and the blood that was on Mr. Fields did not match the blood of the victim. And there was lots of blood around in the room where the victim was found and Mr. Fields was found, correct? And Mr. Fields confessed not only to murdering the victim, but also to murdering his brother, who hadn't been murdered, who was still alive. And someone else confessed, <coughs> correct? Miss Burton, yes. Yes. So, so we, you have a lot of that kind of evidence, and you have a juror or two saying, "Yes, this experiment in the jury room was was important to my deciding that Mr. Fields could, in fact, have murdered the victim." So, on the question of prejudice, we uh, we agree uh, that we're under the Brecht standard, so there has to be a substantial and injurious effect uh, on the verdict. I, I'd make point. And do you agree that the Chapman standard was misapplied by the state court? I think the best reading of the Supreme Court of Kentucky's decision is that it, it inverted the Chapman standard, the burden on that. and we In other words, it misapplied it, yes. You're, correct. You'll, you'll recall we made that concession to you at the panel stage, and, mm-hmm. and we make right. the same no, concession. Right, but we're here in front of everyone, so sure. we might as well be clear. So, so, we're, so we're under Brecht. The warden agrees with that. Uh, and if I can give you just a couple of data points to think about on prejudice, uh, to give you my best answer on that. Uh, the first is that the juror testimony, there was some discussion, Judge Strange, that you brought up. Uh, the juror that testified that she brought the issue up was Juror Hall. Uh, and Juror Hall uh, at 13.522, that's page ID, that's record 89.3, she said, quote, the jury experiment, quote, wasn't what you know said that he was guilty or not guilty. So the juror, the juror that brought the issue up um, said that it wasn't what determined guilt, at least in her mind. I do want to clarify one thing. From- said... But there was also juror testimony that this proved to me he could have done it. That it, that it was possible, yes. That was the, the testimony. But Ms. Hall... General relieved me of my concerns answer, right? Gave her peace of mind, I think, is, is what she said. I do want to clarify one thing from the supplemental brief. At, at page 19, we talked about what uh, Juror Hall was 100% sure of. Uh, I went back and read that in preparing for argument. I think what she was 100% sure of, it came out of her mouth in, in an odd way. Uh, but she was 100% sure she asked the question. But then she said that it did not, it wasn't what you know said that he was guilty or not. So the one juror that had a concern said it did not affect her bottom line conclusion, although it showed it was possible. The second data point that we'd asked the court to look at on prejudice uh, is the fact that uh, Mr. Fields was indisputably found in the house uh, with Ms. Horton's dead body. Um, there's no dispute about that. He was there. He was arrested there in the room with her. He was in the room with her dead body. The third point, and Judge Moore, you brought this up, there were there were confessions. There was not one confession to one person. There wasn't three confessions to one person. There were three confessions to three different people to the murder uh, of this. And I think... Were they all at the same basic time while he was drunk? Like one was to the EMT, correct? Correct, and that was um, approximately an hour or so they had to drive to Ashland from Carter County. Uh, so it was approximately an hour or so. His blood alcohol content at that point in time was 0.14, so he wasn't intoxicated. But the first two confessions were to the arresting officers, first to the first officer they got there, to the second officer after he was Mirandized, and then third to an EMT. Um, so we They th- were all while he was drunk, 
Correct. He was, presumably, if he had a .14 an hour later, he was drunk when it happened, yes. So that was the evidence. And so we think that under Brecht, that if you put together the fact that the only juror that said it was an issue for her said it wasn't what determined guilt, you put that together with he was in the room with her dead body, plus that he confessed three times, we don't think that was correct. He had blood on him because he had broken a window by punching it out earlier. And the blood on him was not the blood of the victim who died in a very brutal way, which left a lot of blood, but none of her blood was on him, correct? That's correct, and we just qualified that a bit. There was a blood spatter expert that testified, who testified that given the nature, it was probable that there would have been blood spatter, but not certain. So there was an explanation for that. Or was there his blood from his already cut hand on her, right? There was none of Mr. Fields' blood on the victim, that's correct. And was his blood on the storm window or on the twisty butter knife or on the screws? Where was his blood found? So as you note, he broke a window at a different property, and a lot of his blood was found there. And then it's a short distance from that other property to Ms. Horton's house. And his blood, my memory is there was a screen on a window on her back porch that his blood was found there. Is that where the storm window was? No, ma'am, on the other side. And your theory was that he came in through the storm window, that he had taken off the 17 Phillips screws caked with paint in that very limited amount. Correct, that was the Commonwealth's theory, that because when the first officer to enter the house went around, and I believe it was the middle window on the front of Ms. Horton's home, the screen or the storm window had been removed and was leaning, and that Mr. Fields entered through that front window. And he did all that without leaving a drop of his own blood there, huh? So I think that's correct. Now, I will point out that there was blood that was found, I believe it was on his shirt, that they weren't able to ascertain whose it was. It's remarkable there wouldn't be any blood on that storm window, you know? There was no blood that was found there. How much blood was found in the other property? I'm just curious. Sure, it was found at various places around, my memory is around the back window where he, you know, as Judge Moore asked. A lot, though, you know? So the pictures, I mean, the specks of blood, they were on the sidewalk around the house. It was found somewhere, I believe, inside that house as well. Because he punched through the window with his hand. Correct. With the hand that he presumably would have been holding a knife when he presumably killed the woman, correct? Presumably, yes. And the testimony was that he arrived at Ms. Burton's residence. She was sitting on the front porch. She had been locked out, and he handed a knife to her, another knife to her that was dropped. And he said, I'll break in, or I'll get in the house, essentially. And at that point, Ms. Burton left and went to her family's, a member of her family's residence. She was gone in this important time frame? She was. In this case, there are other confessions, are there not? So there are, there was testimony that Ms. Burton 
confessed one general, one specific to two other people. The first one was to a lady named Kathy Gallion. Ms. Gallion had been evicted by Ms. Burton's husband, and so there was some tension there. Ms. Gallion never told the police about the confession. She eventually told the defense attorneys. That alleged confession came five years after the murder. Burton had a feud with Horton, the victim, correct? Because Horton had evicted Burton, and Burton was very angry about that. There was testimony to that. I think Ms. Burton contradicted that in her testimony, but I will agree there was testimony to the effect that she and the victim, Ms. Horton, had disagreed. Wasn't that included in information about that included in one of the confessions by Burton? Wasn't there information about what she's telling me to do? She's not going to be telling me to do anything anymore or something along those lines? That was said to someone else. The other confession of Ms. Burton. Yes. The first one was to Kathy Gallion. The second one was to Norma Slos. Ms. Slos waited six years after the confession to tell the police. The alleged confession there came approximately four years after the murder. What was her statement as to what Ms. Burton said? My understanding is that Burton and Ms. Slos did not have a close relationship. Ms. Burton walked up out of the blue and then allegedly made an incriminatory statement with respect to Ms. Horton. This all goes to prejudice, is that correct? I think it is irrelevant to the point I was about to make. I could let you make your point. My question was going to be, this all goes to prejudice, so unless we find a violation, we don't need to be worrying about prejudice. Do you understand Brecht to operate on a sliding scale? The more prejudice, the less of an error we need to find? Or is it we need to find a clearly established error before we start talking about prejudice? The latter. I don't believe it's a sliding scale. If you agree with the warden's position that there is no clearly established law from the U.S. Supreme Court on this issue, as I talked about at the beginning of my argument, you agree with me, our position is you do not need to reach any of these factual questions about this cold record. How do those factual questions play into what the Supreme Court has told us about why they have articulated a general rule? I'm thinking about Williams, which says that when a court applies a rule of general application, which the court does and can make in fact a rule, or a rule designed for the specific purpose of evaluating a myriad of factual context, which is clearly what you have in this type of case, then quoting again, it will be the infrequent case that yields a result so novel that it forges a new rule, not one dictated by precedent. What is it about this case that makes it so rare that the application of the Supreme Court's articulated rule would be inapplicable? I think the fair-minded jurist standard applies. We have to look at the three or four cases involving the bailiffs, the witnesses who stayed with the jurors, the contempt issue. None of those involved a jury experiment. We have to take that highly generalized rule. 
and then you would have to apply it here in a way that my opposing counsel concedes that some jury experiments are constitutional and others are not. And so I, I think that the, the tension, Judge Strange, is between uh, unreasonable application and extension. And cases like White versus Woodall or the Arbor decision from the U.S. Supreme Court say that sometimes the line between application and extension uh, is hard to draw. We submit that it's just not that hard to draw here uh, because we... That a little bit sounds to me like an argument that the Supreme Court can in fact make a general rule because there is a recognition of the importance of the interest at stake, both confrontation, due process, um, validity of evidence, all of the reasons to have things occur in the courtroom. And yet when you want to apply it now, you tell me we look to these four cases, it's not one of these four cases we're done. That doesn't jibe to me with what the court has said about why there is a necessity for this myriad circumstances covering due process type of rule for which, which will cover these unless it's so novel that it isn't covered by it. And you cite four novel circumstances and say, end of game. Um, can you explain to me how that explanation works sure. in the context of this rule? So I, I think it works. I, I think the premise of your question, I would argue, is in tension with what the U.S. Supreme Court has said. Specifically, Woodall, what it said is, a, if a habeas court must extend a rationale before it can apply to the facts at hand, then by definition, the rationale was not clearly established at the time of the state court decision. And so I've got these four cases, none of which uh, we all agree, none of which will involve jury experiments. So you've got to extend those cases first to jury experiments. And then my opposing counsel now agrees you have to extend extend those four cases in a way that draws a line between some jury's experiments being per- permissible and some not. So I do I think there's two inferential steps that we have to take under U.S. Supreme Court, or that they have to take, before this court could award relief uh, to Mr. Fields. Is The extension is, in fact, of what the Supreme Court has said, right? Sorry, I, I didn't hear. The, I didn't hear. The, the intention that we are looking to is an extension of what the Supreme Court said. Maybe I'm seeing this incorrectly, but it seems to me that what the Supreme Court said is their rule, that they are covering a myriad of factual context. It is, conversely to what you say, it is the infrequent case that yields a result so novel that it forges a new rule, one not dictated by precedent. And the precedent that we're talking about, isn't it the Supreme Court precedent? Rather than trying to assure ourselves of where we fit within the four following cases. Do you understand my question? So I Am I missing something? And I think, again, I, I go back to Woodall. Like the, the, the issue there was a no adverse inference instruction at the penalty phase. The U.S. Supreme Court had not addressed that issue. It had addressed it at the guilt phase, and it had said that, generally speaking, the, the, the Fifth Amendment protections apply at the penalty phase. So it had not liquidated that highly general rule that it generally applies. Um, and so the petitioner got up and, I think, make the argument very similar to the one that you're making. You put all of these together, it's fundamental enough it's obvious this is the case. And the U.S. Supreme Court said even if it might be the next logical step in our precedent, 
That's not the providence, uh, a province of uh, EDPA review. We have to wait for the Supreme Court to liquidate that general rule uh, before we can have a clearly established violation. And, you know, as someone representing the state... Many of those cases with facts that are generated across a multitude of events are going to make their way to the Supreme Court. It seems to me that what you're saying is here is this general rule that should apply intentionally so because of the very significant constitutional rights involved. And yet, if you don't have that case already there, you lose. And isn't that at odds with Panetti when the Supreme Court said EDPA does not require state and federal courts to wait for some nearly identical factual pattern before a legal rule must be applied. How do you account for that statement in Panetti? So I would give the same answer that I gave to Judge Mathis on that, which is that that standard about the same set of facts would apply if the Supreme Court had liquidated the general rule in the context of jury experiments and had drawn uh, some sort of line. I think Judge Batchelder's panel dissent makes this point really perfectly that that she says that the Supreme Court has told us over and over, cautioned circuit courts against defining a rule at too high a level of generality. And that, uh, for example, Nevada versus Jackson, Smith, White versus Woodall, they've done that over and over again. The court made the exact same point in in Brown versus Davenport, a case that came from this court. So they've just been unyielding in cautioning courts against this high, highly general rule. And how do we know it's highly general? We know it's highly general because it's never been extended to this context. And my opposing counsel acknowledges you've got to draw a line because all jury experiments can't be unconstitutional. I think those two markers tell us that we're not talking about materially indistinguishable facts. We're talking about a rule that is simply too general uh, to supply a ground for EDPA relief. Do you think it's just one rule? By which I mean we have... Um, several different constitutional provisions in play. I don't understand why we shouldn't look at each constitutional provision and ask the question whether this constitutional provision is implicated. So I asked about the Confrontation Clause. What's your view on whether the Confrontation Clause applies to evidence rather than witnesses? Uh, So uh, my view is that it it requires extending it um, to a new circumstance, right? This This is... Away from people and to things. And to things, to a cabinet in particular. I think a cabinet would be a witness. So is the state's position that that's a reasonable extension? or it, it, So it's not, it, I mean, it, it has to be such that no fair-minded jurist would uh, disagree that that's the only extension. Right, well, if I, if it's, doesn't, that, doesn't that, if I assume that it really means witnesses, that means the confrontation clause is just not implicated in this case like it would be implicated in Doan. Correct. Um, and then we ask, well, what's the next one? Well, I've seen impartial juror. Um, and in, in the cases like Irwin, uh, 10 of the or nine of the 12 jurors went into the jury room, uh, went into the trial saying he was guilty. Okay, that seems like an impartial or a partial, a biased juror. But I don't see how we could possibly say this juror, this jury was biased simply because it didn't experiment or at least. Maybe maybe I'm missing something about what what it means to have an impartial jury. Yep. But would 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 you think that an experiment would make the jury biased? Right. I, I think you. Ha- it's obvious that there's bias there where they where they had predisposed were predisposed against the defendant. So again, this makes the same point I was so making. Is there anything wrong? I mean, that's the way I think of our constitutional arguments. Is I ask what provision is at stake, and I suppose the problem I have in this case is I don't even know what provision is at, is 
that issue? I mean, I think that that's, uh, that's how the petitioner has presented it. And I think you're right that if you break down, I think, two or three that I've heard today, you know, confrontation, you have to extend it. Can't do EDPA relief there. Right to fair trial, you have to extend it. You can't do EDPA relief there. And an impartial jury, you have to extend it. You can't do EDPA relief there. I think that you can put the constitutional rights together. You can look at them individually. It's an extension, not EDPA. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you very much. Mr. Kirsch, you've got five minutes. few points I want to make. Um, first, um, there was a, a question earlier about instruction. Juries are, are instructed uh, to consider the evidence before it. That is a part of the instructions uh, that they receive. Um, there's this you dis- agree they can do jury experiments. I mean, if we don't have a Supreme Court case, I think the assumption is experiments are okay until they say otherwise. So the assumption is experiments are okay. Provided, again, that they're using evidence that has been admitted. Um, that they're not they're, that they're not using evidence that is totally outside of the trial because the Supreme Court has clearly said that that is impermissible. What if the, the evidence screws, must come from the courtroom? I don't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. That's all. Go ahead. Aaron. I mean, let's say they're using the same screws, but in you know the intervening few years, those screws have gotten pretty rusty. It's the same screws. They're evidence, but they're not in the same condition they were. Is that a permissible experiment? Again, I think it is permissible for the jury to evaluate the evidence that we Even if it was like demonstrably harder uh, in that instance. Let's say like un- undoing the screws is exculpatory and now the rust makes it really hard to undo. I mean, is that fair to the defendant? I mean, you think that that's an experiment the court should, should approve? Um, again, um, I think the defendant could make an argument about that. Uh, but I, I think that that situation is fundamentally different than what we're talking about that happened in this trial. What, what line because has the Supreme Court drawn as to jury experiments? What line has the Supreme Court established that these jury experiments are consistent with the United States Constitution and these are not consistent with the Constitution? Well, as the discussion earlier, the Supreme Court has not specifically applied this rule in the context of a so jury experiment. So how is the state court supposed to know then? I mean, we're, we're saying this is an extreme malfunction of the judicial system yes. by the Kentucky Supreme Court that yes. uh, all, all reasonable jurors should have known, jurors should have known that this violated the U.S. Constitution. If the Supreme Court hasn't drawn a line, how is the Kentucky Supreme Court supposed to know? Because the Kentucky Supreme Court has already considered this exact issue and found in a, in a case exactly similar to this one that it does apply. They've already, they've already determined that. That sounds like a slightly different argument. That sounds like the Kentucky Supreme Court isn't consistent in its own interpretation of its precedent. But that's a slightly different question, like a, actually a really different question, than whether they, this time, made an error in applying clearly established Supreme Court precedent. And that's our only question, right? Well, but I believe it is a relevant question because we're trying to determine, did, did, what the court did in this case, was that objectively reasonable or not? As the fact that they... With the baseline being what the U.S. Supreme Court has done, not what the Kentucky Supreme Court has done before. 
the Supreme Court for the rule, for what the rule is. But I think you can look at, and the Supreme Court has said this, you can look at what a state court has done to determine whether or not EDPA deference applies. They said that in the Panetti case. Because in that case, which involved a Ford claim, the state court not only did not apply federal law, but they didn't apply their own state law. And the Supreme Court said in that situation, it's not appropriate to give this kind of deference that's always talked about in EDPA cases to that court because they didn't even follow their own law. The fact that the Kentucky Supreme Court sort of disagreed with itself, doesn't that sort of show that the law wasn't clearly established? It's such an easy question, the court would have harmed them. Well, to me it shows that it was unreasonable to not apply it in this case because they applied it before and they've applied it after. It continues to be the law in Kentucky. Mr. Field's case is the only one that I know of where they have not applied the law as interpreted by the Supreme Court. Thank you, Mr. Kirsch. Thank you, Mr. Kuhn. Thank you for your helpful briefs and above all for candidly answering our questions, which we always appreciate. The case will be submitted.